1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God, in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word, and let's affirm our trust in it together. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. We continue our series in First Peter, and we uh, last week transitioned from the general explanation of doctrine and identity in Christ to more practical application. And maybe to at least some of our surprise, Peter focused his strategy. Oh, I'm sorry, the children are released. <laughs> I see children in the back. <laughs> children are released to go to children's church. And if you're new here and you have a child, you can go into the foyer and somebody there will tell you where they're going. But as we transition from doctrine to application, which is a common pattern in Scripture, uh, we found that the main strategy that, that Peter is suggesting to the church in a hostile culture is submission. He's actually telling us that the best way for us to portray the gospel to the world, the world that doesn't understand us and uh, is, is suspicious of us and is ready to reject us, the best way to communicate the gospel of God's grace to them is through our submission. Submission of the flesh to the spirit, submission to human institutions, submission to unjust suffering, and now we're coming to the topic of submission in marriage. Now, Peter is particularly interested in instructing Christians how to live as a witness to the gospel of Christ in a hostile culture. And so his strategy is submission. I was surprised by that. I had to work through it myself, and I hope that you are doing that as well. So we're looking at this Christian teaching on marriage, and I realize how strange this teaching must sound in today's culture. But I think it's precisely because it's so different, it's so strange today, and I think it's going to become more strange and more different as time goes on. But precisely because of that, it could become a powerful witness to the gospel. Now, this passage and several other passages in the New Testament may feel wrong to you when you read it. And maybe, as I read the passage, it it already felt wrong to you. So as we wrestle with it, now let me suggest that different cultures wrestle with different parts of this passage, first of all. 
But we are here in this culture, in this world. We're going to wrestle with a particular part of it. And I'll try to cover it the best I can. But before we do that, let me suggest three considerations for you as to how we can wrestle with this teaching and why it's difficult for some of us to accept. Number one, we're sinners hearing God's Word. There's going to be some tension. Whenever God speaks to sinners, we don't say, oh, it makes perfect sense. I completely agree. Who does that? We're sinners. Of course we're going to disagree with God. Of course we're going to need time to work through it, and we're going to have to understand and trust Him. We should not come to the Bible expecting it to support our already formed opinions. Instead, we come to the Bible expecting that the Bible will shape our views. Doesn't God know what makes us flourish? Shouldn't we trust the one who created us, the one who redeemed us, to guide us in all things, but in particular in marriage as we think about that? Doesn't he know what's best for us? It may not be what we think is best, but shouldn't we trust him? And that's one of the points of wrestling and tension because we're sinners coming with our own ideas and God has to reshape us. He has to reintroduce us to these great truths that actually are very important to, to our flourishing. I was at, at Panera. I'm at Panera a lot, but about a year ago I fell in with a group of older men at Panera. And so now I go there every morning and there's a whole community of people at, every, I think, every Panera by the way. I've been to others, and there's very similar groups of people everywhere. But I was, I was working on this sermon, I was working on this, and I overheard this, this vibrant conversation. There were probably about four or five older men and women sitting around, and, and they were talking about love and sex and marriage and divorce and affairs. I mean, it was just a crazy conversation jokes, they're laughing, they're crying. So I'm overhearing that, and of course I'm paying attention because I'm thinking about marriage. And, and then at the end of it, one lady gets up and she says, this is the only way you're going to get romance. You're not going to have a body in heaven. So the conclusion was, get it while you can, however you can, because this is your last chance to get romance with the idea that if I don't get it now, I'm not going to get it because God is going to take my body away from me and then it's all over. Which, by the way, you're going to have a body in heaven, so if that's what you're worried about, you're going to have a better body in heaven. But it's interesting how sometimes we process that and we think if I don't do it my way, if I don't just grab hold of whatever I can, if I don't try to be happy right now, then it's going to be all over because God is going to take it from me at some point. Now, we're all shaped by our culture. We're shaped by how we see things. Um, anybody stay up on Thursday night for the new Taylor Swift album? Don't have to raise your hand, please. That's okay. I didn't stay up, but I did listen to it the, the following day. Taylor Swift has shaped a generation of, of, of girls primarily, but people in general. 
She's a great songwriter, I think. But she's a poor relationship counselor. <laughs> and we're coming in to whatever topic, and specifically when we're talking about marriage, we're coming in with all these ideas. Some of them you can verbalize, some of them you're conscious of, but many of them you're not. It's just the water you're in, and you come in with all of this. And so what do we do with that? We have to submit to God's Word and let the Bible shape us. That's what we do. So whatever you bring in with you today, and whatever preconceptions or experiences you have about marriage and how men and women are to interact in marriage, you have to be open for the Bible to speak into that and to change it whenever it's necessary and to adjust it and to, to correct your views. So that's my first consideration. We're sinners here in the Word of God, and there's going to be tension. Secondly, we are likely to be reacting to this teaching, the teaching of submission and male leadership in the home, as misunderstood, misapplied, and abused in the church. It must be said that some have twisted this teaching to rationalize self-centeredness and to cover up their sin. And every Christian must be outraged at the sins committed in the marriage and covered up by the Bible. Our response shouldn't be to abandon the Bible. Our response should be, let's apply it better. Let's repent. Let's do church discipline where it's necessary. Let's make sure we don't rationalize our sin by using God's words. But let's move towards a healthy understanding of marriage as God tells us it is and embrace it and practice it. And the third consideration, we are to remember that Jesus does not command us to do anything that he himself has not already experienced. Jesus does not command us to do anything that he himself has not already done and experienced. Now, this passage outlining the respective roles and attitudes of the Christian wife and the Christian husband is ultimately rooted in the example of Jesus Christ. And so as you wrestle with this, and some of you are not married, some of you are too young to be married, some of you are single, some of you are widowed, and you may think, well, this is a teaching on marriage that may not apply to me. But everything I'm going to say is going to be about Jesus, and that does apply to you. And I hope that in this example of a Christian marriage, you will see Jesus. Because ultimately, that's why we do what we do in marriage is because of him. It's his example. I think the most important word in this passage is not submit, <laughs> and it's not honor. It's likewise. Likewise. That's where our passage starts. And then it repeats it again. The most important word here is likewise because it links these commands, it links this application to Jesus and to his example. He is the suffering servant we are called to imitate, and both the husband and the wife end up imitating him in marriage. Both roles are Christ-like, and we will see that in our passage. So let's organize this sermon under three headings, three times likewise. The first likewise as it relates to the Christian wife, the second likewise as it relates to the Christian husband, and the third likewise as it relates to us today by way of application. Okay, the first likewise. Peter's immediate concern, of course, is with the witness of the gospel in a mixed marriage. 
So he's considering if the wife is a Christian. Remember, this is a lot of these are first-generation Christians. People are becoming converted. And there are many wives who are Christians, but their husbands aren't. And so Peter is instructing Christian wives to present the gospel to their unbelieving husbands by Christ-like submission and cultivation of inner beauty and Christ-like character. One commentator puts it this way, The hope is that by the wife's respectful and pure conduct, the unbelieving husband may come to saving faith, neither by means of prolonged verbal argumentation nor by ostentatious physical beauty will the unbelieving husband be won to Christ, but through the hidden beauty of her gentle and quiet spirit. Now, if you are a Christian wife married to an unbeliever who has repeatedly ignored or rejected the gospel, this passage might be particularly helpful to you. On the other hand, this teaching is applicable to all marriages and is consistent throughout the New Testament. Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19, Ephesians 5, 22 and following, teach the same ideas of how wives and husbands are to interact in marriage. So let's work through it together. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, likewise, as I said, points back to Christ in the previous passage, 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 25. Let me read this again. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And then likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. That's the connection. Just because the separation of chapters is where it is doesn't mean these two ideas are not connected. Of course they're connected. They're inextricably connected. The reason why Christian wives are called to submit is because they're imitating Jesus who submitted. They're imitating the suffering servant by his wounds were healed, who did not revile when he had a chance, who did not push his weight around when he had a chance, but submitted. The call here is for the Christian wife to follow the example of Christ by submitting to her husband. Just as Jesus submitted himself, so the Christian wife submits herself to her own husband. Notice that the submission is voluntary. The command is not to the husband. Husbands, please hear me on this. The command is not to the husband to make sure his wife is submissive. That is not the command. The command is to the wife to submit to her own husband. This is very important. The Christian wife is the Christ-like figure choosing to submit to her husband. The submission is not forced. It is chosen in imitation of Christ. Now, in verse 6, likens Christian wives to Sarah's children because she submitted herself to her husband, Abraham. Notice that Peter specifies that this submission is a good thing and not done out of fear. 
The Christian wife is not called to submit to her husband because she's scared of him. Rather, she freely gives up her power, trusting in her own identity as a Christian. And through her submission, the Christian wife emulates the other-centered, sacrificial posture of Jesus. Jesus did not submit because he was inferior to others. He did not submit because he was afraid of others. He submitted for the sake of others. It was an expression of God's grace to sinners. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Who did the emptying? Jesus. It's a voluntary thing. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, his decision, his choice, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Likewise, Christian wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, why did Jesus empty himself? Why did he humble himself? Why did he choose to submit? So that he can save us for our sake. His submission, his humility, his sacrifice was redemptive. Meaning he was bringing something back, purchasing something back out of slavery to bring it back to God, to reconcile people to God again, to restore them, to renew them, to give them a new life, to bring him back to the shepherd. That's why he submitted. That's why he humbled himself. And the same dynamic works in the Christian marriage. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The Christian wife's humility, her gracious submission, her respect, her purity and consistency of her conduct toward an unbelieving husband have the power to draw her husband to Jesus. Or to put it another way, the Christian wife's beauty points the husband to Jesus. Verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now how sad that many read this passage as a prohibition of jewelry and makeup. And they look at that and they say, this is it. This is what this passage is about. We need to make sure our women don't braid their hair, they don't wear any jewelry, right? But by that logic, they shouldn't be wearing any clothing either, because that's what the passage says, right? Let your adorning, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Could you wear silver but not gold? Doesn't say anything about silver here. Do you see how sometimes we, we latch on to a passage and we come up with a whole big application without seeing the context of what's being said? What's the context of this? Prioritize inner beauty over outer beauty. That's the context. Peter is saying, don't try to convert your husband by your beauty. 
by your external beauty. Don't try to braid your hair just so, so that your husband would listen and believe the gospel. Instead, prioritize your character. Prioritize your posture, your demeanor, your godliness, your consistency, your purity. Because that is very precious in God's sight. Nothing wrong with external beauty, right? It doesn't have the same power that internal beauty does. In other words, as the Christian wife imitates Christ, it is Christ's beauty in her that draws the husband to Jesus. It's Christ's beauty that is reflected in her very character. I remember hearing a Christian couple at the time they were in their 60s say that their marriage is now more enjoyable than when they were younger. The husband said that as their bodies get weaker, their inner persons get stronger and more beautiful. I don't think he was joking or trying to put a spin on something negative. No, I think he really believed and he really experienced that as they were growing together in Christ, they were more attracted to each other because of the internal beauty they saw in one another. And the strength of what was happening internally provided the strength for their marriage. Now, what, what happened in that couple's lives? Christ was being formed in them. Christ was being formed in the inner person. And it's Christ's beauty that was making them beautiful and was making them beautiful for each other. The old Puritan Samuel Rutherford said, And oh, what a fair one, what an only one, what an excellent, lovely, ravishing one is Jesus. Put the beauty of 10,000 worlds of paradises like the Garden of Eden in one. Put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing would that be. And yet, it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. Oh, but Christ is heaven's wonder and earth's wonder. There's nobody more beautiful than Jesus. And whenever we emulate him, whenever we do what he does, whenever we embrace his qualities, we cultivate his kind of character, his kind of posture, we become beautiful. And that beauty prevails, and that beauty has the power to draw other people to Jesus. When the Christian wife submits to her husband for Christ's sake, knowing that through her submission, God's grace is being poured into her marriage, into her husband's heart, she adorns herself with the beauty of Christ himself. And it is this beauty that has the power to draw her husband and others to God. Okay, husbands. Likewise, number two. Likewise, husbands. The likewise links the Christian husband's calling to Christ's example, just as the first likewise linked the wife's calling to the same example. 
As the Christian wife models Christ in the marriage, so does the Christian husband. This is not one-sided. And it is such a damaging misconception to think that the essence of the Christian marriage is the wife making the husband's life easier. Shame on any husband who takes advantage of his wife's humility. The essence of the Christian marriage is both spouses modeling Christ to one another. The essence of the Christian marriage is both spouses modeling Christ to one another. Now look at how Peter describes the husband's role. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, according to knowledge. Live with your wives according to knowledge. Knowledge of what? Well, certainly knowledge of God in Christ, certainly knowledge of the gospel, certainly knowledge of your own identity in Christ, because that's what Peter has been talking about. But also knowledge of your wife. Knowledge of your wife. Understand your spouse and live according to that. I had a friend in Chicago whose marriage advice to husbands inevitably reduced everything to knowing how your wife takes her coffee. Somehow that was the biggest application he could pass on to, to young husbands of saying, you know what you need to figure out? You need to figure out how to bring your wife a cup of coffee just exactly the way she likes it. Now, okay, is there truth to that? Of course, you know, it's... Can you solve a, a deep, dysfunctional communication with, with a cup of coffee? Probably not. Can you heal deep wounds with a cup of coffee? Probably not. But if that shows how much you care and you want to know and how much you want to serve your spouse, then yeah, make that cup of coffee. Do more than that, but don't do any less than that. The husband's job is to know his wife so well that he can create the right environment for her flourishing. That's your job, husbands. You need to know your wife so well that you know exactly what decisions to make to provide for her greatest flourishing. Peter goes on to say, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, I mentioned that different cultures look at the same passage and have different issues with it, right? Sure, in a post-Taylor Swift culture, we struggle with submission. But in a pre-Taylor Swift culture, maybe we would struggle with this honor thing, where the husbands are, are told to honor their wives, showing honor to the woman. The same word that he's using when he talks about the emperor. Did you notice that? Let's honor the emperor. And just a few lines down, honor your wife. There's a few cultures even today that would really struggle with that and say, how can that be? That just sounds wrong. That is just not fair. doesn't make sense to me. Well, we just come from different cultures. And the Bible shapes us. The Bible corrects us. The Bible corrects every culture. And so we come to that, and yeah, probably most of us are struggling with submission, but some of us are probably struggling with honor as well. Honor the emperor. Honor your wife. And consider your wife as a co-heir, an heir with you of the grace of life. Now again, that, that, that would be revolutionary in some cultures to hear that. That husband and wife are on equal footing before God 
It's not that the wife submits to, to, God, to husband and whatever he thinks religiously, whatever gods he worships, that was the way in Peter's world. In fact, there were manuals written and wives were told not to have any friends unless they're friends of your husband's and to only worship the gods of your husbands to keep unity in the home and unity in society. That was common in the day. And what does Peter say? Peter says, husbands are to honor their wives because they are co-heirs of eternal life, co-heirs of life, of, of the grace of life. Meaning that men and women, husbands and wives, are equal before God. The Bible teaches equality of men and women before God. Both the husband and the wife are valued by God and stand to inherit eternal life based on each person's faith in Jesus, his death and his resurrection. Okay, if that's what the Bible teaches, what's this business with the weaker vessel? Why does Peter say to the husband that they should honor the wife, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel? Well, I think he's simply referring to the reality that most men are physically stronger than most women. And because most women are physically weaker than most men, they're more vulnerable to violence and abuse. So by honoring his wife as the weaker vessel, by acknowledging the vulnerability and the potential problems that a woman would experience in their world and, by the way, in our world today, the Christian husband restores her dignity and equality in the marriage. I think this is, a, this is a wonderfully balanced, honest assessment of how to treat men and women. On the one hand, there's honor. There's imperial honor to the woman. On the other hand, there's acknowledgement that as a weaker vessel, as a physically weaker being, there's a lot more potential for violence. So let's protect. The husband is supposed to protect. And by doing that, he restores her dignity. He restores her equality. He actually evens things out by doing that. The ideal of a biblical complementarian marriage is not a domineering husband and a passive, docile wife taking abuse from her husband. That is not what Scripture teaches. The ideal is a husband that honors his wife and does everything he can to maintain and protect her dignity. And a wife who trusts her husband to make decisions that reflect Christ's sacrificial love for his bride. In a Christian marriage, where the wife's dignity is compromised, we have to ask the question, is it biblical? And, and the answer is always no, it's not biblical. In a passive husband who doesn't fight for his wife's well-being and covers it with whatever egalitarian view of the Bible they, they accept, we also have to say that is not biblical either. Only when both partners are modeling Christ, one by giving up her power in grace, the other one is by redefining what power is according to Christ and using that power, the gift of power that was given to him for the flourishing of his wife, that is biblical. And Peter ends this section with this phrase, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What he does is he connects our home life with our relationship with God. 
He connects the marriage relationship with the relationship with God. If the marriage does not reflect the character of Jesus, of course it would be difficult to pray. Of course. Christian marriages marked by arrogance, selfishness, oppression, abuse, disrespect, and neglect do not only hinder prayer, they also damage the witness of Jesus. As one church father said, nothing hinders the work of God like trouble in the home. Nothing hinders the work of God like trouble in the home, which may explain why our enemy is so keen on destroying marriages and homes and children. And finally, the third likewise. Likewise, you Christian wives and Christian husbands, put this teaching into practice. Embrace your callings as Christ-like husbands, as Christ-like wives, partnering together in applying and proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Now listen to Tim and Kathy Keller talk about complementarian view of marriage. In Jesus, we see all the authoritarian, authoritarianism of authority laid to rest and all the humility of submission glorified. Do you see what they're saying? In Jesus, the authoritarian view of authority, the overpowering, domineering kind of view of authority is laid to rest because that's not what Jesus is like. And all the humility of submission is glorified. In the world, submission is bad. Humility is bad. But in Christ, humility is great. Submission is good. It's life-giving. And in Christ, that happens. The authoritarian view of authority is laid to rest, and the humility of submission is raised and glorified. They go on to say, both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority, Jesus in his sacrificial submission, by accepting our gender roles and operating within them, we're able to demonstrate to the world concepts that are so counterintuitive as to be completely unintelligible unless they are lived out by men and women in Christian marriages. If we just say that, that doesn't make it any less than true. Of course it's true. This is God's way. This is His Word. But we have to model it. It's not enough just to say it. It's not enough just to criticize what's happening in the world. And there's so much to criticize. And we must say things. Of course we must. And we must point out the misery and the dysfunction and the confusion all around us. But we're not going to the world for answers. We're going to Scripture, and as we get these answers, we're not just proclaiming them, but we're also living them out. And the witness of the church isn't going to be just in our prophetic voice, but also in our prophetic lives. It's fine to set up seminars on complementarian relationships in the marriage. It's fine to do that. But if we're not living it out, what are we saying? How empty are those words? And how easily rejected are these teachings unless they are demonstrated in our own lives. So this is where it gets very practical for me as well as for you. 
As a Christian reading these verses, as a Christian hearing these teachings, we have to ask ourselves, we have to look at our own marriages if you're married, and we have to ask, does it portray Jesus? Does it portray Jesus? Do we live out the gospel in the way we treat our spouses? Have I simply embraced the traditional view of marriage? Have I given into the new cultural way of relating to others? Or am I actually doing what the Bible says and I'm doing it for the right reasons and I'm doing it in the right spirit and I'm doing it because Jesus is doing it? Imagine how the world sees your marriage. Do they see a wife joyfully sharing her power and humble submission to her husband like Jesus? Do they see a husband accept the gift of his power submission, of his wife's submission and power, and using that power to provide for the flourishing of his wife? Do they see your inner beauty, your character shaped by Jesus? Do they see your fearlessness? Do they see your sacrifice? Do they see honor in your home? Do they see Jesus in your home? John Patton was a missionary, and he shares this story about his father and his father having family devotions in his home as he was growing up. He said, I have heard that in long after years, the worst woman in the village, then living an immoral life, but since changed by the grace of God, was known to declare that the only thing that kept her from despair and from hell of the suicide was when in the dark winter nights she crept close up underneath my father's window and heard him pleading in family worship that God would convert the sinner from the error of wicked ways and polish him as a jewel for the Redeemer's crown. I felt, she said, that I was a burden on that, God, on that good man's heart, and I knew that God would not disappoint him. That thought kept me out of hell and at last led me to the only Savior. The story is that a woman was watching and listening secretly what was happening in the home of a Christian family. And she saw Jesus there, and she came to Jesus based on the testimony of a father having family devotions and praying for the gospel to spread and for sinners to be saved. Now, if others observed your home life, if somebody is creeping by your window and listening in, and I know that's an unsettling thought, <laughs> or if somebody can, can hack into your phone and listen to your conversation, which is another unsettling thought, but if somebody can witness what is happening in your home when you don't think anybody is watching, when you don't think anybody is listening, what would they conclude about Jesus? What would they think about your faith? What kind of witness would you provide to the world? I did not pick this passage because I wanted to target somebody or I wanted to address this particular issue. This is the next passage in the book. But providentially, of course, God is going to speak to us when we need His Word. And some of us today need His Word. And some of us today need to be convicted and we need to repent. 
There are husbands that need to repent of not showing honor to their wives, not knowing them, not loving them as Christ loves the church, taking advantage of, of their wife's humility. You need to repent if that's you. There are wives who need to repent of their lack of submission, their lack of grace and respect and the quiet spirit and the Christ-like, lack of Christ-like character and the inner beauty. If that's you, you need to repent. I'm getting things from this passage for me. I hope you are as well. I hope that all of us as a church, we come to a passage like that and we say, Jesus, shape us. Change us however you want. Make us more like you. Be formed in us. Change us. Not only so we could be happy, so we could flourish, but so we can portray Jesus to the world. So let me pray. And if you want to talk to me after the service, I'd be happy to talk to you and pray with you. If this is convicting or you need encouragement, I'd be happy to do that after the service. Let's pray, and then we'll come to the table together.